through uh, this book that has been so powerful. And I pray it's opened uh, your all's eyes it is, as it is, has opened my eyes as well um, to different ways that the Holy Spirit has worked through God's people and through the early church to accomplish what it was that the Lord needed and desired to do in the world uh, of the first century, right? In the world that was just uh, really, it was blossoming and growing and, and borders were expanding and, and they, were, they were going and finding new people in different places and different different countries and areas and uh, tribes of people. And, and, the, and, and on the back of that was the church, right? The church was following as it grew and as the world expanded and as, our, as the, world, the modern world's understanding grew of, of what was around them, the, the church was right there with them, going to these new places, going to these foreign places, going to these unexplored places and presenting the gospel. And, and that was the working of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful uh, that we have seen that in and through the book of Acts. And as we continue to, uh, to see that through the next few chapters. Uh, but this morning, I want to take a real good look of the example of Paul's testimony. All right? This is Acts chapter 24, um, verses 10 through 16 is the scripture that we will be reading. But Paul, we understand, and, and this last part of the book of Acts really begins to focus in on, on the end of his life, the end of his ministry, the end of his journey. And, and though it's about Paul, we are seeing the working of the Holy Spirit in and through Paul. Right, seeing what God is doing in Paul's life, as even though his life is ending, we understand that is getting closer and closer. It is ticking towards the end. He's not free to do what he once wanted to. He is not able to go and be his his, his health, his 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 freedom is being hindered by what the situation he is in. But I'm thankful to realize, and I hope that it's not um, that you do not ignore this fact that this is the end of Paul's life. But God still remains. And the Holy Spirit still remains in God's life. And, and there may be some of, us, some of us that we might be in a place right now where it, it might feel like the end of our life. Where it might feel like that our years are waning and we're getting close to that. But I hope you recognize and realize that no matter what age that you are, with a relationship with Christ, He is there and the Holy Spirit remains. And He is with us throughout the end of our days. And the Bible says that He will take us over to the other side. That He will meet us there and welcome us in. Um, A good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. And I'm thankful for that. That the Holy Spirit is with us all the way. To the young, to the old, to the weak, to the strong, uh, to the sick and healthy. The Holy Spirit is there for us. And we see that in Paul's life. Um, but let's read here in Acts chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. We'll have it on the, on the screen and you, if you want to follow in your scriptures as well. Um, but let's follow along here and see. We'll set the stage in a minute. But we'll see what Paul is talking and saying um, to these people here now um, in the 24th chapter of the book of Acts. And it says, Then Paul, after the gov- governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation... I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things for which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Living in all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. This is Acts chapter 
24, verses 10 through 16. So real quick, if you've not been able to be with us over the last couple of weeks, or or maybe just to refresh our memory, let me help you understand what is going on in, 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 this, in these few chapters here in the book of Acts. And um, these few chapters really slow down on the past few, and just slow down and look at just a few days of events that are happening in Paul's life and happening in Jerusalem. We know that Paul has come to the point in his life where he feels compelled from the Holy Spirit. We can extrapolate that from Scripture. He feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. right? And he says, and makes it very clear to some of the other churches that he has established, he says, this will be the last time I go to Jerusalem. And this will probably be the last time that you see me here on this earth. So he goes to Jerusalem. And, and really, we understand from the Scripture, is not the one that starts preaching. He is not the one that starts sharing the gospel. He is just present. And his presence begins to anger some of the Jews, specifically the Jews from Asia, is what Scripture says. And the whole synagogue, the whole temple, with Paul being there to worship during these festivities, uh, they begin to turn against him and, and, and to call upon him and to, to shout him down and just to, to show great anger towards him to the point that the Roman centurion of the area sees it from his place. They would have places to look over these squares, look over these things to make sure that there was no kind of nonsense going on. And He saw and he sent some of his men down to, to take him in and, and to begin to see what was going on. And, and he asked the Jews, he said, what's going on? Why are you angry at this man? And, and they, this is where the fall accusations against Paul begins, right? We talked about that several weeks ago, these false accusations that were made against, against Paul. He brings them in, and, and Paul talks about his citizenship, talks about how he's a Roman, and, and, and the, the centurion says, I'm just basically not going to touch that, right? That's not my that's not my area. That's not anything I'm going to do. And he goes through some things, some sitting in uh, different places. Ultimately, he's sent to, to Felix, who was the Roman governor over the Jerusalem to the Judea area at this time. Right? Kind of an overseer, maybe similar to a governor of Tennessee, fill the same kind of role, right? Then we get to chapter 24. And Felix calls upon those that have made accusations against Paul to come and present their accusations. And those, they come, and the Bible says that they, they bring a speaker, right? They bring a lawyer, is what they bring. That's basically what it gets down to. Somebody that's eloquent and knows how to present things in a certain way to compel. Felix the governor to turn against Paul and to allow the Jewish people to do what they want to. This is the Sanhedrin court, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which is ultimately to execute and to see Paul die. Yeah. And then we get Paul's, call what you want to rebuttal, his defense, his testimony. And he begins to discuss those verses that we just read and, and a few more after that. And I do encourage you to, to read that chapter. Um, but I want us to look at the example of Paul's testimony. What we can learn from Paul's testimony here in this defense, his rebuttal, and what we can learn about how we can allow that to spark and to be an example in our own life. Right? First, I want to talk about how we are to be a light in darkness. A light in darkness. Scripture tells us in a multitude of places that we are to be a light in darkness. We get an example of Matthew and John. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Right? This isn't saying that you have to preach the gospel. This isn't saying that you have to work miracles. This isn't saying that you have to, to share and, and just be very biblical in everything that you do. But it's saying to let your light shine before men. John 1, 1 5 comes in and it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Another translation says it cannot comprehend it. Right? It just doesn't make sense to it. It cannot go past it. It cannot get through it. It cannot go around it. Right? What's that little story when we were growing up? I think it's a bear hunt. I can't go over it. I can't go under it. I can't go around it. So I'm going to have to go through it. The darkness saw the light, and it couldn't find any option because the light was greater, and the light was stronger, and the light was Christ. Right? We were to be a light in the darkness. But sometimes darkness is, is twofold, as we see in, in Paul's example. We don't get a great big list of who Felix is in the Bible. And one of the, the worst things we can do as Christians is just read a name and discuss nothing about it and just say, well, that's just a person and not understand who that person is. Um, we are given the Bible... And it's a wonderful tool. But we are also given history that has been preserved through time. And God has preserved that history as well. And the Romans did a pretty good job of preserving their history, of their rulers especially, of those that would govern and things, because they liked their taxes. And that was all tied together. So we understand quite a bit about this governor Felix. We know that Felix was a, a devious man. A, a very devious man. He would find any and every excuse to, to stomp down on the people, to plunder and to take from any group of people underneath him so that he could stuff his own coffers and make himself more, more wealthy. He, he did not like those that were below. He was known for his cruelty to those that he oversaw. We even know that, we know from history that the high priest, I think it was Jonathan, was, that, that Felix sent assassins to kill, and they did kill the high priest of the temple during Felix's reign. So Paul stands before Felix, knowing that Felix is not a merciful person, knowing that Felix is not a sympathetic ear to Paul's cause, knowing that, that he, he knows that Felix has issues with the Jews, with the temple, with the synagogue, with all these people that are worshiping things besides Caesar. Right? Was that who Felix looked to? Caesar was almost made out to be a god. And they, he recognized that this guy, I'm looking at darkness. I'm looking at the world. But I have to be a light to this darkness. Yeah. Him, Lord. We get scared of talking to our neighbor that we don't know. Paul goes and he says, I've known you've been a judge. Paul makes it sound real nice and sweet, but what he's saying, I know who you are, Felix. I know what you've done to the high priest. I know what you've done to the people that worship the Lord. I know what you've done to these minorities and to these ones that are ostracized, to the ones that are weak and poor and defenseless. I know what you've done to make yourself stronger and better, more rich and richer and everything. But he goes and he is the light. But we also see that Paul's in a dark place himself, is he not? This isn't the first time Paul had been in prison. This isn't the first time that he has stood on trial. This isn't the first time that his life, his very, the very breath that he breathed was on trial, whether it would continue or whether it would be snuffed out. This wasn't the first time. And any of us would look at his situation and say, man, that's a dark place to be. That's a rough place to be. But even yet, Paul was a light in his darkness. 
And there's times when we're weak, and there's times when we're weary, there's times we're going through things, and, and we just need to, to rest. We need to take a step back. But too many times we allow our circumstances to, to influence how much of a light we are to the world around us. That we only shine our light when things are going good. And we only shine our light when things are bright and cheery around us. But we all know that a light is more significant and powerful when it is surrounded by, by darkness. Children sing that little song, but I feel like we've forgotten the motif of it. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine until Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. We've got our own verses. Let it shine when I'm down in jury. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine when the bills are due. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine when things aren't going well and 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 my spouse is angry at me and the kids are upset and everybody's sick. I'm going to let it shine. You need to let the light shine in darkness. Sometimes we let it shine to the darkness of the world around us. Sometimes we let it shine in the darkness that surrounds us. We are to let our light so shine that men will see it, and as Matthew says, and they will glorify God. We can see Paul's example of being a light to and in the midst of darkness. Right? And I love it because... Even later on in this scripture, we know that Paul stays with Felix for two years before Felix kind of lets the next person, you know, let the person come and takes his place. And the Bible says that on multiple occasions, Felix called upon Paul to, to come in and tell him more about this way, the way. That's what they were known as, followers of the way. And I can't imagine shining a light in darkness the first time. But then when you've been in, in prison for two years, still being able and willing to shine a light in the darkness. It's hard, but we are to shine that light and to be that light in in the darkness. But we also see his defense of the gospel. In verses 14 and 15, he says this, 13, 14, 15, But I, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, what's he saying? According to the way which they, they think it's a cult. They think it's some hypocritical, some sacrilegious, some kind of thing that is, that is an abomination to the Jewish culture, to the Jewish religion, to what they believe is true and right and holy. That according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. He's connecting it back. He's saying, I'm still worshiping God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshiped, right? Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He does in no way denounce the very scriptures that the Jewish culture founds their whole culture upon. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul points to his firm belief in the law and the words of the prophet as a basis and a foundation of his own teachings. He's saying they are accusing me of basically teaching from the same word that they teach from. They are accusing me of perverting this thing, but I believe the same things that they do. Worship the same God that they do. Understand that it's not just Paul that is on trial here. It is the gospel message that the early church was preaching that was being put on trial. 
This gospel that we are given salvation and life through and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do you say here? You say, this way that I follow, it is based upon the beliefs of our fathers, the beliefs of the law and the prophets, and this hope that I have in God, they should have that same hope because we get our hope from the same place. From this understanding of God, Christ, the Messiah that He does send, and this Holy Spirit, He's saying, we come from the same place. I'm defending myself. And how does He defend Himself? He goes to the Word of God. He goes to the Word of God. Now, in modern day culture, we call the defense of Christianity Christian apologetics. Apologetics means is to be equipped to defend the gospel or to defend the Word of God, defend the message of salvation. And this goes beyond sometimes what we, our surface level understanding of Scripture, of the Bible, of salvation. Apologetics is a is a thought process. It is a it is a way to, to think about the world around us in that we see God moving and working in everything so as to be able to defend those that would say and speak against the Word. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, these people, they're speaking against me. They're speaking against what I'm teaching. But don't they know everything that they believe, that they hold as truth, that they hold as a priority, that is what I am teaching. I'm just saying we don't need, they say we don't know the Messiah. My only difference is, is that we do know the Messiah. And he is Christ Jesus. Amen. Now we as Christians, as disciples of Christ, as modern day followers, as the church of today, of this period, of this era, we too should seek to be able to defend the gospel message. The worst thing we can do sometimes, and it's the thing that we often do more often than not, is we say, well, this is just how I believe. That's great. Yeah. But we need to know why we believe. Amen. What we believe. Amen. We need to understand why it is so that when we are challenged, when we are, when we face adversity, and we, when we face these people that stand against what we believe in, we can go to bat and say, this is why I believe what I believe. I believe Jesus Christ was dead, buried, and resurrected in three days. Why? We just say, I believe it. But we need to go and there's, there's, we just see through Scripture, through history, that there is a reality that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was crucified, and that there was something happened. The Romans, we understand, tried to cover it up. Scripture tells us that. They tried to make it appear as though something different had happened. He said, go just tell them that his disciples have taken them away. We understand that there was something peculiar in this situation, even from historical record. We need to be able to defend the gospel. You can call yourself an apologist or whatever you want to, but we need to be equipped to defend the gospel message. Paul, very eloquently in this time, when it was his life that was on the line, still saw fit and said, it's just as important for me to defend the message of the gospel as it is to defend myself. You could almost say that he realized, if I defend the gospel, I'm defending myself through and by that. Because the gospel is what will protect me yeah. and preserve Amen. me and keep me during this time. Right? We prioritize our own preservation. Our own not being ridiculed or made fun of or, 
we're shamed by the society and the culture that we live in. And many times we do that in the opposition of preserving the Scriptures and preserving the truth and preserving the Gospel message. If we seek to preserve and to defend the Gospel message, we ourselves will be protected and defended and preserved by the Holy Spirit working and taking care of us. Amen. If you have a desire to to un, to understand more about apologetics, right? To understand more about about what God, how we can defend the gospel. These are two great examples. The case for Christ is written by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a, is a writer. I think it's the Chicago Sun or something like that. And he was an a, just a, a just he really was an atheist that fully and wholeheartedly believed there was no God. And he sought out to, to be able to go and to, to say, to give proof to why Christianity was just all fake and all false. In the course of that, he becomes a believer and a follower of Christ. And we see the same thing with More Than a Cogger by Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell himself also was a person who was staunchly against Christianity. And he followed the same process. So these both are great. If you want to understand about apologetics, the defense of the gospel, the defense of scripture, find one of these two books and go and read them. The Bible is great, but we like to see these understandings of scripture of, of people that have seen the process so that we can then show other people that process of taking an atheist to the understanding that God is real. That Christianity is a solid foundation, is a solid religion that we can base our lives upon. So, Case for Christ and More Than a Carpenter are great places to start to begin to develop those skills to be apologists or to defend the gospel message. Because we all need to be equipped to defend the gospel message. And what we don't realize, and what sadly the church has done a poor job of presenting, is that our only evidence isn't just the Bible. There is clear and concise supporting proof and evidence of many of the miracles in Scripture that so many like to denounce if we look at the science, if we look at history, if we look at philosophers and different things. There is proof of it, but we as a church are ill-prepared to present that in defense of the Gospel. And the repercussions of that is so many times our young people go off and maybe they go off for work or they go off for school and they are ill-prepared to defend the gospel. But somebody else is very prepared to attack the gospel. Yeah. And we need to be ready to defend, to give a rebuttal and a testimony to the truth and the authenticity of the scripture and the gospel message. So to defend the gospel. But we also see how he is blameless. Verse 16 says this. He says, this being so, once again, the previous verses before that is him talking about how I believe this. I believe the law. I believe the prophets. I believe the, the, the God of our forefathers. I believe in a resurrection of the just and the unjust. I believe in all these things. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. God and men. First part of the scripture we read this morning. Paul goes about telling them how all these accusations they've gave it, put against me, they're not true. He said, you know I just showed up 12 days ago. He said, and you ask any of them, and if they tell you the truth, I wasn't starting anything in the synagogues or in the city. He goes on later on in the scripture, he says it was the Jews from Asia that had issue with me. And he said, I would reckon, basically, if they really had a problem with me, 
they themselves would have showed up to said something. Yet since they didn't, we just have to go off that word, their word. Paul was very good at, at talking. I don't know if you realize that. Paul pretty good at talking. Okay. They brought their own lawyer. They didn't know that Paul himself, you know, he, he Holy Spirit was working with and through him. But he goes on, he's talking about how I didn't do these things they've accused me of. And then he can, he shifts into this defense of the gospel of what he believes and, and in essence why he believes it and why he's teaching it. And then he shifts here in the 16th verse and he says, basically, because of that, I myself am always striving to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. What he's saying, because I believe in a God, in a Christ that is resurrected, because I believe in the Messiah that the prophets have foretold about, because I believe in the God of my fathers, that we know that He created the heavens and the earth, and that He has ordained us in this path to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for His Messiah to come through it, and for us to be redeemed and saved through His Messiah. Because I believe that, I try and seek, He says I strive, to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. I try to live blameless because of my belief in Christ. Not to earn his salvation, but he tries to blame us because he believes in Christ. We go on Colossians 1, 21 through 22. It says this, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. As Christians, as we follow in Christ's example and in Paul's example, we should seek to be blameless and above reproach. Blameless and above reproach. Understand this does not mean perfect. Because we will not accomplish that task. But it does mean to seek to be blameless in all things. To seek to obscure and to, to, to remove ourselves from the presence of sin. And things of that nature. To seek to follow in His footsteps. So that if the time comes, and we might not be put in trial in essence in the way that Paul was. But we are constantly on trial in the court of public opinion. Right. Constantly on trial in the court of social media, in our friends, in our family, those that are lost in the world. We are constantly being judged and evaluated for our actions and for what we do. And Paul says, you can look at what I do. But because I love Christ, what you will find is a blameless image of who He is working through me. Through He is working through me. We too should present ourselves. Not as perfect. I'm not saying if you've got something wrong in your life, you need to hide it, you need to cover it up, throw it under a rug and act like it's not there. No. But we need to be desirous that we seek to follow in Christ's footsteps. That we strive. So He says strive. He doesn't say I've accomplished it. He says I strive to have a good conscience without offense towards God and me. <coughs> we strive to be blameless in the sight of God and men. That we strive to be above reproach to those that speak of us. 
Then when they go and around the water cooler, they go whenever the enemy tries to inject something and they begin to try to talk about us, they can't find anything legitimate to say about us because we have strove in, in all of our essence, in all of our life, to be blameless. It's a high mark. It's a tall task. What is asked of us in that Scripture? But we see that it is important to live out an effective testimony before men. Because we have all talked to somebody. And we have all witnessed to somebody. And we have all shared the gospel to somebody. Whose response was this. Well, if so and so is okay. And I guess I'm okay too. Yeah. Well, if so and so is going to make it. Well, I guess I'll make it. Two. And understanding we're not basing this off of works. We're not saying we should work for our salvation. But what Paul says in this scripture is that because I believe in Christ as the Messiah. That's what this being so means. Okay? Give you a little bit of grammar. Give you a little English. Whatever you want to call it. This being so is saying because of what came before, the causation, the effect of that was this. Because I believe in Christ as the Messiah, I myself am constantly striving and seeking and doing everything I can to live the life before God and men that they would say that I am blameless. Blameless. And above reproach. Okay? And that should be our desire as well. That we are so convinced of the divinity and the power and the saving grace of Christ as the Messiah that it drives us to seek to be blameless in His sight. And if we're blameless in God's sight, we'll be blameless in man's sight. That's right. Not because we're trying to earn His love, but because we've been given His love. And since we have been given His love, we seek to do what He desires of us and be blameless in His sight. So that the world and that the enemy cannot take our carnality and use it as a tool against what the Spirit is trying to do in somebody else's life. We talked about Sunday morning, though, how often our actions through our flesh has done more to serve Satan than we have done to serve the Lord. Amen. And that is by living a life, not that has messed up some mistakes, we're going to have those, but living a life that doesn't care about having messed up some mistakes. There's a difference. Yeah. Both are going to have mess of mistakes. But what Christ desires for us is for us to care about it and desire to do better right. with it. Right? Sadly, we know that there there is a portion of the church world today whose mentality is that mistake just don't matter. We'll say it's under the blood, and it is. But it'll come with the caveat that it says, well, I just don't care about it. And they'll just go on like nothing happened. We should live with the lie. And Scripture even tells us that if we are not convicted of our sins, we are bastards and not sons. That's what Scripture says. That when we fall and when we make mistakes, it should convict us. Because our desire in loving Christ should be to be blameless in His sight. But we need to understand there's a difference. We can believe that Christ has saved us, preserved us, 
that He will protect us and He will keep us. And also believe that sin is wrong. Amen. And that we should seek to be blameless. We should believe both. And we should understand that those two are tied together, not two opposite things. Amen. We should seek to be blameless in the sight of God and men so that our testimony will not be empty but will be full of the Spirit. And it will convict. And it will hit and prick the hearts of those that are lost and reveal to them that they need to be saved. Amen. This is Paul's example. The example of his testimony. To be a light in the darkness. Sometimes it's our own darkness. The situation around us, sometimes it's the darkness that we face. To be able and to be equipped to defend the gospel. It's one thing to believe what you believe. And there's a portion of faith that is solely based upon that. But we as followers and disciples of Christ should be equipped to defend what we believe as well. But we also should seek to be blameless in the sight of God and of men so that we can do the work and that the enemy has nothing to use against us. So the enemy can't say, well, look at them. Look at what they've done. Here's the thing. When you mess up, which you will, own it. Go and seek forgiveness. Not only of the person that you did it to, but anybody that witnessed you doing it as well. Right? Me and Terry try to make a habit. And this isn't putting us on a pedestal, but we try to make a habit. With Harper, if we get tiffed at each other and Harper's in the room, after we make amends, we go and make amends with Harper as well. So that she knows what I saw isn't right. And it's not what mommy and daddy want. That should be something that we carry out into the rest of the world too. You say something ill to somebody at work, you go and apologize to them. But your co-worker that saw it too, you need to go and say, Hey, I shouldn't have done that. And it was wrong with me. And I went and I made amends with them. But I want you to know as a Christian, I shouldn't be showing those kind of things. You going and doing whatever it may be, you, you steal or take something, maybe it's out of ignorance, you didn't realize it. You go and make amends. But you also go and make amends with the person that witnessed it as well. And that's how you live a blameless life. That way when somebody brings it up, we're like, yeah, I know he did that, but, but three days later he, he came and, and told me he shouldn't have done that. And he apologized for it and owned his wrong. I can't really say anything bad about the man because he, he recognizes himself. And he tried to make it right. And that's how we live blameless lives in the sight of God and men. You say, well, that's tough. That's a tough task. That's strange. I don't know anybody that do that for me. The Bible says that we are peculiar people. Peculiar people. That means we need to do peculiar things. Amen. And follow Paul's example. I'm thankful 